0: 2007, November 21st. Today is Lecture 41, Planetary Rings. Right. So we talked about Saturn's system yesterday, and we talked mostly about the moons. I only briefly showed a picture of Saturn's rings. And Today I want to talk about planetary rings in general. We'll spend obviously a lot more time on Saturn because Saturn has the most extensive and, and interesting of the ring systems. But in fact, there's a couple of simple facts that we're going to see today, one of which is that All of the Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all have ring systems of various kinds. So the key ideas we want to cover today are as follows. First of all, simple factoid. All the Jovian planets have rings, every single one of them. They range from Jupiter, which has extremely faint, dusty rings that were really only discovered when Voyager passed by, Saturn, of course, has been known since the time it was first looked at through telescopes that it had something going on, and Huygens in the 17th century showed that it had a very bright, spectacular system of rings. That's the iconic, you know, little kid's picture of a planet. It's going to be Saturn, you know, a planet with a ring. Uranus and Neptune also had rings around them. They turn out to be much darker, thinner rings than are seen around either Jupiter or Saturn. And in fact, Neptunes even resolve into ring arcs. And these weren't discovered until the late 20th century. And finally, we'll spend some time talking a bit about what the rings are made of. Basically, they're orbiting bands of either icy particles or dusty particles that have fallen into a plane around the equators of these these planets. We'll also introduce the idea of shepherd moons. It's one of the gravitational mechanisms by which rings can actually be confined into thin little rings. And we'll say something a little bit about the origins, the possible origins of the rings that will lead us to the introduction of the so-called Roche or tidal radius, which is how close you can have a body get to the gravity of another before the tides actually tear the body apart. And that's going to be part of the clue as to what's going on to building a planetary ring system. Well, let's just dive right in. Jupiter, all the the Jovian planets have rings. Now this was certainly known that Saturn had rings. That's the classic example. But in the late 20th century, people started thinking, well, why is it we don't even have little faint ring systems? We have very strong gravity. You have icy conditions out there in the outer solar system. There should be conditions conducive to the formation of at least some ring system. So why is it Saturn has rings and the others don't? What this led, of course, was to people to look a little bit more closely And indeed, when people examine these places more closely, primarily with the spacecraft flying by them, but actually from the ground as well, people found that there were ring systems, but they're very, very faint, very, very thin. The one surprise, though, was Jupiter. Jupiter is kind of in a relatively warm part of the solar system. You don't expect bare ices to really survive there. And what we found around Jupiter was very, very faint, very dusty rings. These are not now made of ice particles, but actually kind of ground up, almost sand-like, sooty particles, what we refer to as dust, although it's a lot coarser than the interstellar dust you'll probably learn about in 162. There's very, very little material in these rings. The, ma- the total mass, if you add up the complete mass of all the rings in the, in the Jupiter system, it's about one trillionth the mass of the Earth. So it's a really a t- tiny amount of stuff. In round numbers, this is a million times less material than found in the bright, icy rings of Saturn. So these are really, really small. Here's some pictures of just sort of how thin these are. This is a picture taken, this top picture here is taken from the Galileo spacecraft. When its orbit brought it behind the planet Jupiter, so the Sun is being eclipsed by Jupiter here. And you can see the, reflect, the refraction of sunlight around the limb of the, of the heavy atmosphere of Jupiter. And you can see the rings just barely backlit. You can sort of see where the shadow kind of cuts them off a bit here. And this is a close-up. Again, this is seen in, in what I'd call forward scattering. So the sun, is, the sun is sort of in front of us, and we're seeing the light scattering off the rings and into us. That turns out to be the best way to see these dark rings, because they're not very reflective. And you can see, they're very, very flat, but they're made of a series of bands here. There's sort of a little gap in there, but there's a fairly sharp edge. It's almost as if the outer edge of these is being reasonably confined. You can also pick up, and it's a little hard on this picture. I'm going to try just dousing the lights a little bit here. You You can't really see it much. There is actually a very, very faint halo on these rings. You have to really amp the contrast up to see it. That faint halo is actually part of a system known as the gossamer rings. It's very, very faint, and tenuous material. So to see it more easily, rather than using the photographs which require kind of a lot of tweaking, you can go to a cart- oops, Sorry, you can go to a cartoon of them, which we'll show in just a second. One question is, what is this material? Because we didn't expect there to be any icy material, and in fact, people didn't really expect there to be rings around Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, maybe, but not Jupiter. And the answer is because the material is so dark and dusty, the most likely source of this is twofold. One is dusty material that's knocked off of the moons, of the inner rocky moons of of Jupiter, by, by meteoritic impacts. Basically, the meteor impacts on the surface. These things are very dark. They contain a lot of rich organic material or carbonaceous materials on them. And the impact basically melts and blasts off this material. And it settles into this ring plane to form a ring. The other source of dark, dusty material are comets. Comets actually turn out to be fairly dark objects. Even though we think of them as really bright, the actual nucleus of a comet is really pretty dark. In fact, one of the darkest thing, darkest objects in the whole solar system is the core of Halley's Comet. Jupiter is a gigantic gravitational uh, suction device out in the solar system. It has a lot of influence. It sucks in comets relatively relatively regularly that pass too close to it. And it's thought that perhaps these comets getting sucked into the, in capture around Jupiter probably led to capturing some of the material that went into the rings, and again, it settles down into this plane. Here's a cartoon showing what the rings look like. The ring portion that we saw in those previous photographs are actually this this what's called the inner or main ring. It's actually truncated on the inside and a little bit on the outside here, being confined on the outside by the action of the moons Metis and Adrastea. You'll remember a couple days ago, We talked about Jupiter's moon system. There are the four inner tiny irregular moons, and they're the ones that actually play the strongest role in the rings. The outer edge is strongly truncated by the two innermost moons, Adrastea and Metis. Then there's a very, very thin outer ring set called the Gossamer rings. They're very thin, almost gauze-like, and they're confined respectively by Amalthea and Thebe, which forms the other two for the complete set of the inner four four moons. The outer Galilean moons begin much further out beyond the edge of the ring system here. So what we're seeing is material which is probably associated with these four inner moons, certainly is being orbitally or gravitationally confined and sculpted by the action of those moons, may have had some origin in them as well. Maybe some of the material knocked off these inner moons is what actually went into forming the rings plus material from comets. So even in the Jupiter system, which has got a very, very lightweight ring system, we can already see some of the features that are important to us. The fact that we've got material settling into a plane in orbits, and the fact that moons around the system play a role in sculpting the shapes of the rings. Well, of course, the ring system that really catches everyone's attention is the ring system around Saturn. Here's a cartoon made up of a series of photographs from Cassini showing the main body of the ring system plus some of the fainter outer rings and the positions of the various moons. Titan, which is the biggest moon, is actually way off this figure. So the main body of the rings around Saturn, they're big, they're bright, they're really broad. They range from the inner D ring here at about 73,000 kilometers from the center of Saturn out to the edge of the so-called F ring, which is the outer edge of the main bright rings here out at about 140,000 kilometers from the center of Saturn. Now those numbers in thousands of kilometers probably don't help you much. A more interesting number is they're between 1.2 and 2.3 Saturn radii. So we're talking about material that's actually pretty close to the s- tops of the clouds here. You know, the one Saturn radius is the cloud tops. Just 20% further away, you get the inner edge of the D-ring and it's only another basically 1.3 Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, 1.3 Saturn radii away is the outer edge of the F ring. Now beyond the F ring, we see once again one of these very, very thin, ring, very th- uh, thin and tenuous rings, the so-called E ring. That's the one we met yesterday that's being created by the ices fountaining off of the moon Enceladus. We also notice where the various rings are with respect to the various moons. Enceladus, of course, is well known to be within the E ring. The moon Mimas and Tethys... Which play a role in the actions of Enceladus, flank it on either side. And then there's a virtual lack of moons until you get right down into the moon, into the rings itself. The F ring will turn out to have two moons flanking either side of it, Prometheus and Pandora. The Enki division, or the Enki gap, has a single moon inside of it called Pan, which was only recently discovered. The other feature of the rings that are are pretty clear from this picture here, is, and certainly, if you if you've ever seen Saturn through a, a good enough telescope, in good enough conditions to see the rings clearly, you'll notice that the rings have a series of gaps in them. As they're, what they appear as very black bands and otherwise very bright material. The largest of these gaps is called the Cassini division, although there are a couple of other minor divisions, the Encke division and then there's something called the Keeler gap which is out in here. They're named for the astronomers who first saw them from Earth with by eye with telescopes under really exceptional seeing conditions. The best I've ever been able to do sort of my personal best with with telescopes have been this, the Cassini and the Encke divisions. I've tried for years to see the Keeler gap and there was one night where we were looking at it at Lick Observatory with the 36-inch refracting telescope. It's a very long focal length telescope. We had superb conditions. Unfortunately, when my turn came to the eyepiece, the two people in front of me saw the Keeler Gap and I was really excited. When I got up there, that's when the seeing started getting wiffly and I couldn't see it anymore. So, you know, it's just... it's what being an observer is about. You know, sometimes you get lucky and most times you don't. But anyway, here's a good look at what the Saturn ring system is. Now, the thing is... As broad as these rings are, we're talking of tens of thousands of kilometers in round numbers, from the inner edge of the D ring to the outer edge of the F ring is about 70,000 kilometers. That's, ten, that's five times the diameter of the Earth. And yet the thickness of these rings, top to bottom, is only about 100 meters. So try to imagine something that's about five times the diameter of the Earth wide, but only as thin as one side of a football field to another. That's how thin the rings are. So what's going on here? Why is it they're so broad, and why is it they're so thin? Well, here's a, another just gorgeous picture. We saw this one yesterday. This is Saturn's rings, again, seen backlit by the sun. The sun is being eclipsed by Saturn. It's a picture taken just earlier this year by the, uh, by the Cassini spacecraft. Now you can see the broad Cassini gap, the Enki gap. It shows up as this outer gap here just between the outer two rings here. This is the thin outer ring here called a G ring and this is the E-ring here, and Enceladus is just visible as this little spot down here. And of course, as we saw yesterday, this little sort of star-like spot just on the inner edge of the G-ring there, of course, is our own planet Earth being viewed as we look back into the inner solar system. Here's a close-up now of the rings. This is looking in, this is near the inner edge of the rings here. This is the Encke gap. You can see the Keeler gap there, and of course, this is the Cassini division here. One of the things you first see about this is the rings are not a continuous sheet. They actually are made up of thousands upon thousands of little ringlets all nested together. For those of you old-fashioned audiophile types, it looks a bit like an old phonograph record in many ways, but it's a phonograph record with some great big tracks missing from it. So here you can see also some color. Normally when we see the rings, we see the rings in reflected sunlight, and so they look like sunlight shining, coming off of bright, shiny ices. And that certainly is what we would see with the eye. But using digital cameras, we can play with the contrast a bit. And there actually are color distinctions among the various pieces that make up the ring. These colorations are probably due to organic contaminants on top of the ring ices. But one of the first things that should become obvious is is the rings here are very, very bright. The rings of Jupiter were really dark. They were hard to see. In fact, you can only really see them when they're backlit or you can see them in the infrared. But the Saturn's rings just, just walk out and get you. And the reason is because we're looking at bright, shiny, icy surfaces with only a little bit of organic contamination on top of it. That's an important clue as to the dynamics of the rings. Something is, if you take an ice ball, put it out in the outer solar system, there's all kinds of dark, dusty junk around. And over a few million or billion years, you expect, as we've seen, the surfaces of the moons all get this sort of dark, reddish, gunky patina on them. So why is it the rings have stayed so clean? And the reason turns out to be that they're constantly colliding with each other in the rings, breaking off, this, breaking off the outer surfaces, and so the patina is never actually able to, to build up, and so they stay nice and bright and shiny. Here's a nice edge-on picture of the rings. So Cassini is on a, on a long, tilted orbit, a series of long, tilted elliptical orbits around Saturn, and every now and then it makes a passage through the ring plane In this particular case, it was making a passage to the ring plane on the day-night terminator of Saturn. So the sun is off over here to the right, as viewed in this picture. And you can get an idea of how really, really thin these rings are here. They're just razor thin. And even that, the thickness that you see in this picture, is largely the resolution limit of the camera. The actual rings are literally no more than about 100 yards thick, except maybe in a couple of, of lumpy spots. So what's going on here? Well, as I've alluded the composition of these rings is basically ice balls. They're they're certainly not solid, they're containing of billions upon billions of, of ice ball sized particles that probably range in size from a couple of centimeters in size up to about five meters. So, you know, sort of you know, small garage or big truck kind of size things for the largest ice balls, but most of them are literally about snowball or fist sized. That's one of the clues to why it's only a hundred meters thick. The total mass of these things is about one millionth the mass of the Earth. If you add that up, that sounds like a fair amount, but it only adds up if you, if you could collect up all the ring particles and form them into a moon. You'd only get a kind of a 100-kilometer-size irregular icy moon out of it. So it really isn't that much material, but the fact that it's broken into really tiny parts and then spread over a huge area and the surfaces are kept roughed up and clean is what makes them really shiny. Now the ice balls are in really close orbits. Each of the individual ice balls is like a little tiny moonlet orbiting around Saturn in the equatorial plane of Saturn. As they move around, they're within close proximity with each other. Now the orbital speed of one side to another means that there's always these really slow motion collisions. They're always bouncing off each other inside the rings. And it's that bouncing off of that has two basic effects. One is if the collision is really slow, the heat of the collision will melt the ices and then it will freeze again and the two will then stick together and you grow. Other times you might have a a ring particle which has gotten kicked onto a slightly elliptical orbit compared to the circular orbits and so they'll actually come in and smack each other. And when they smack each other hard enough, instead of sticking, they actually will fragment and be able to break into smaller pieces. So you can imagine you start out with fairly big chunks when you're building a ring system but successive collisions will slowly break them down. Eventually, you reach the point where the rate at which things are breaking down roughly matches the rate at which things are coagulating to build back up, and you kind of achieve an equilibrium, where for as many things as you build up by sticking together, you later break apart. And so you form a nice equilibrium and a distribution of things that range from really tiny sizes up to kind of truck sizes. The other thing is that these collisions are part of what makes the ring plane so thin. So now instead of imagining things going on in the plane where things are bouncing together, what you have is imagine vertically now. As two things are orbiting around, they're going to probably oscillate up back and forth. If you took a... see How how do I want to do this? Take an object in a simple circular orbit. Okay, It's just going around the plane like this. And in the gravity, you sort of give it a little pat. And you actually push it vertically up out of its orbit. What's it going to do? what it's going to do is it's actually going to oscillate up and down as it orbits, just like it's on a spring. Now, if it was all by itself, it would just continue oscillating up and down. In fact, if the oscillation is exactly in time, it will look like a tilted elliptical orbit because it will go up and down and exactly, say, up and down once in one orbit. But what's really going to happen now is we've got billions of these things. So if one of these things gets knocked up high, when it comes down, it crosses and hits something else. So the effect of these things bouncing up and down, but hitting vertically is to eventually settle into a ring plane. No matter what you try to do to try to make the rings thicker, the interactions of gravity are going to tend to, over time, make them fall down into the plane. Of course, as you begin to hit things in a plane, you either make them go orbitally quicker or orbitally slower. That's going to cause two particles which are together to slowly move apart. So the way I like to think about how the ring planes evolve into this very, very thin sheet is imagine trying to stack ping-pong balls on the floor. You can do it. If you're really, really careful, you can make a nice little pile of ping-pong balls. And then what happens if one fly lands in the right, the wrong part? You know, they'll spread out all over the floor into a single layer, one pin ball, one ping-pong ball thick. That kind of thing happens gravitationally within the ring systems. So that's why you have these rings that are tens of thousands of kilometers wide, but only about 100 meters thick. And that 100 meters is just about the maximum amount of up and down you can tolerate before the collisions would make it smaller. So all these things can actually be understood. This is part of what makes the rings kind of cool to study. Is there this amazing laboratory for studying gravitational interactions? where you're studying now not one or two things grooving around, but billions of things doing their gravitational dance around Saturn. Ah, and the collisions keep the ice balls nice and shiny. I knew there was a point hiding in there somewhere. So here's a picture. This is a, not a photograph now. This is a painting done by Bill Hartman, who does a lot of fo- of scientifically realistic pictures. This is probably not too far off what you would see if you could sail into the ring system and look around you. Here you would see just basically you'd be surrounded by ice balls. Sometimes they collide into lumpy things that look like a half-snowman. Other times they uh, collide and fragment up. And so you expect to find some really interesting sort of shapes in here kept in kind of an equilibrium. Now actually being able to do pictures like this would be impossible. These rings would be a nasty place to actually fly a spacecraft. It probably wouldn't survive the passage through the ring plane. So one of the problems over time of doing the physics of these things was actually trying to understand what is the behavior of ice balls that are in the vacuum of space and super cold. It's one of the few places in astronomy where you can actually do an experiment that actually has some relevance to something in space on the ground. A friend of mine in graduate school worked in what we refer to as the ice ball lab. We actually wanted to know, well how elastic are ice ball collisions? So we actually built, he built a torsion pendulum which would give you very, very slow collisions between a block of ice and an ice ball made in a little, it was basically an ice cream freezer. And they would sit there and bounce the ice ball off of this block of ice and see how big the bounce-off was. And that would show you how elastic the collision was. And so we're actually measuring the material part, properties of ice balls to be able to go into the calculations of how thick the ring should be. That was really cool. It was the first person I ever knew who did laboratory astrophysics. <laughs> so those are the rings of Saturn turns out Uranus and Neptune also have a ring systems. Uh, the, the rings of Uranus were discovered during a quite by accident, actually. Um, people, didn't, people thought maybe there was a ring system around Uranus. They tried to go out and look for it. There's even a vague reference to maybe seeing rings around Uranus reported by William Herschel, who was the man who discovered Uranus back in the 18th century. But no one was able to see it, and no one really took it that seriously. Now, back in the days before spacecraft were able to go by the planets and study them in detail, one of the ways you studied the atmospheres of planets was you'd watch the planet move in front of a star. As you watch the planet move in front of the star, as you go through the various layers of the atmosphere, the starlight would appear to twinkle as it went through the layers and finally get lost behind Uranus. And then as it came out from behind Eclipse, it would go into and and twinkle again as you went through the different layers. And that was a way of studying the vertical structure of, of atmospheres. And you do this in the infrared. Well, in order to know when a particular bright star is going to go behind a planet, it's like chasing an eclipse. You've got to be in exactly the right place on the Earth at exactly the right time to see this. So a bunch of people got out for one of these Uranus occultations, as they're called, back in the, let's see, when was this, about 1978, I think was about when it happened, and set up their, their, their equipment, basically a photomultiplier tube, which could measure the brightness of the star, and then you watch the changes in the brightness of the star, both in visible light and in infrared, as it went behind, behind Uranus, into, as, it, as it went behind Uranus and then came back out again. Well, of course, what you do is you set up in advance of the eclipse, so you make certain all your equipment's running, and then you run to take data to see what the conditions are like, what is outside of the atmosphere, and then you watch the immersion. So there they were watching their equipment, and all of a sudden they saw ping, ping, ping. You know, suddenly the, the light of the star dropped out five times before it hit the atmosphere, and then it came out of the atmosphere, and this time they kept watching, and almost in exactly the same alter, alternate locations, it dropped out five times again. Well, what they were seeing was the star being momentarily eclipsed by particles in uh, otherwise unseen rings of Uranus. Here's now a picture of what those rings look like and why they were so terribly difficult to see from the ground. This is a picture taken by Voyager 2, uh, taken as Voyager 2 went past Uranus. So again, it's this backlighting effect we've seen before. This is the biggest of the rings, the so-called epsilon ring. The names given to the rings were highly imaginative. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. Okay, so the Epsilon ring was the biggest of those, the first big ping they saw in their photomultiplier, and then followed by the other five. These rings are really narrow. They're only about 100 kilometers wide at the widest. Compare that to the tens of thousands of kilometers we saw over on Saturn. Now, it turns out that we can see them from the ground. This is actually a ground-based picture here, shown on the right. But it's using modern adaptive optics to detwinkle, twinkle using lasers basically to detwinkle twinkle the atmosphere a bit and working at infrared wavelengths. So is this, a, yeah, this is a picture taken from the Keck Observatory. And in the infrared, these dark, dusty particles actually have a significant backscatter from sunlight and you can finally see them. They're so dark, they don't scatter much visible light. And so here we see these very, very dark, very, very thin rings of Uranus Here's a picture of this backlighting now, but they've really cranked the contrast way the heck up. And you can see the motion of the spacecraft is causing the background stars to smear. So what they actually did was they, as the spacecraft was flying over, they tilted and panned the spacecraft so it would expose in one position on the rings. But in so doing, of course, the spacecraft was moving with respect to the stars and that produces these streaks. So you can see the direction of the spacecraft's motion this way. And now you can see this again. This looks kind of like what we saw in Saturn's rings—band upon band of ring particles, all orbiting in a very, very thin plane. So the same sorts of thing we saw over on Saturn—a lot smaller, a lot darker material—and so it isn't visible and isn't as obviously visible in backscatter as we see in Saturn's rings. Now, people, once they got and discovered the rings of Uranus, they got really excited and said, "Okay, Neptune's got to have rings too." So they went out and did the observations. And there, the data were really, well, peculiar. They'd see, one person would report suddenly seeing a disappearance on the ingoing side of the eclipse, but nothing on the outside. Or another station would see nothing going in, but something going out. What's going on? So sometimes people thought, well, maybe the rings aren't complete, maybe the wings form into arcs. So it was a big mystery. And all the attempts to do this from the ground with telescopes just didn't get anywhere, because... Neptune is 30 astronomical units away. (coughs) It's way the heck out there. So you had no hope of doing this from the ground. So it really had to wait until 1989. It was one of the big things Voyager 2 was going to do, was to solve the mystery of Neptune's rings. And indeed, what they see is very, very faint, very, very dark, even darker than Uranus rings out here at Neptune. In fact, they're only, now where the broadest rings around Neptune were 100 kilometers, Uranus were 100 kilometers around Neptune, they're only a few kilometers wide at best, and really only visible when they're seen in backlighting. And that mystery about the arcs? Well, the arcs turn out to be that the rings are lumpy. Here, it turns out that... uh, the spacecraft flew by in 1989. 1989, of course, for those of you who remember your history, was the bicentennial of the French Revolution. Ju- j- storming of the Bastille, July 14th, 1789. So in 1989, in honor of the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, the three brightest ring arcs seen in the outer ring of Neptune were named Fraternité, Egalité, Liberté, which of course was one of the mottos of the French Revolution. These are these ring arcs that were being seen, as you would have only be the, in the arcs would they be broad enough to actually occult the star going behind, whereas in the rest of the ring it would be kind of thin. Here's one of the arcs from the inner ring here. And so as a consequence, that's why you would see a dip on one side, but you wouldn't see a dip on the other. The origin of the ring arcs is still somewhat mysterious. We still don't have a good explanation for why the arcs are there. It's probably due to the gravitational interaction of the ring material with one of the moons of Neptune. But it's a really hard problem and no one's ever been able to... They've come up with reasonable solutions, but they can't explain them fully. And the other part of the solution, which is hard to confirm because you need a spacecraft to see these things, you need to get out there in the system, is this model, best models predict that these arcs should be transitory. They should come and go, so they won't be permanent and long-lasting features. So, you know, it's good to know there are still some mysteries out in the solar system, and one of them is the dynamics of the Neptunian rings. Well, this brings up some interesting things. What can you do with, what, other than saying, ooh, gee, the rings are kind of cool, what can you learn from them? One of the things the rings have really taught us is a lot, a great deal about gravitational dynamics in systems that are... Kind of funny, they're halfway between a fluid and halfway between single particles orbiting. And their behavior sort of is a funny amalgam of the two. And systems like this, where you see disks of material made up of discrete parts, are actually very important in astrophysics. The solar nebula, out of which the planet formed, is an example of a more gas-rich, quasi-fluid sort of disk. Uh, When you get into Astronomy 162 and start talking about things like star formation or active galactic nuclei, where you're feeding supermassive black holes inside of galaxies, those are immense disks of gas, and the dynamics of them is very, very difficult to understand. So what the rings give us, observationally, is a way to study some of these quasi-fluid results in an astrophysical situation rather than just simply doing it in simulations and computers. And it teaches us a lot of things that sometimes, at first sight, are slightly counterintuitive. Here's one of those. I just got through describing with Saturn why the rings are so thin. All the collisions eventually spread the rings out. Well, if you actually just simply had the rings spreading out all by themselves, eventually they would spread so thin they should disappear. Those on the inside should fall into the planet, and those on the outside should just simply fly away into space or spread out so thin you don't see them anymore. So why is it that really, really thin rings can still survive? How is it that they're confined, that they don't just spread out like a pile of ping-pong balls would quickly spread itself across the room? Why is it they stay confined? One of these is actually a form of what's referred to as shepherd moons. Shepherd, moon wo- shepherd moons work in pairs, and the way they work is follows. Here's a, a thin band, a thin ring arc, or thin section of a... Start again. Here's a very thin ring made up of a whole bunch of little ice balls all moving here to the left. On the outside of the ring and on the inside of the ring, compared to the planet, the planet's down below here, are two moons. They don't have to be very big. Now the outer moon, remember Kepler's laws, will tell you that the further you get out from a central mass of object, the slower your orbital speed is. So let's just put everything on kind of circular orbits at the point. This outer moon will be moving slower than the inner moon. So I just happened to catch them in this picture where they're just about the same, but of course the inner moon's on the inside track and moving faster so it will eventually get out ahead of the outer moon and come back around and lap it. Now because the inner moon here is orbiting at a slower speed than this inner moon, it's also orbiting at a slower speed than the ring particles. So it tends on average to stay behind a ring particle. The ring particles pass it and get out ahead of it. Well, what's going to happen? that from the ring particle's perspective, they see a big moon behind them. Therefore, they see a gravitational force pulling in a direction opposite to their direction of motion. Remember, forces cause accelerations. And you'll also remember from Newton's second law that the amount of acceleration is inversely proportional to your mass. So here we've got a moon and an ice ball the size of your fist. Okay, So pretty clearly the ring particle is going to see a much bigger acceleration backwards and the moon is going to see an acceleration forwards. They see identical forces, Newton's third law, all forces come in equal and opposite pairs, but the smaller mass thing feels the bigger acceleration. Well, if the acceleration is opposite to your direction of motion, you slow down. What happens if you slow down in orbit? You drop from a higher orbit to a lower orbit. So there's a counterintuitive effect. The effect of gravity in two adjacently orbiting things is if, the outside, if you are accelerated towards the outside object, the bigger object actually dynamically repels the other object. We think of gravity as attractive, but when you've got gravity moving in a dynamical orbiting situation where the dominant gravity is the gravity of the planet, the effect of gravity is to cause a deceleration and therefore a dropping in the orbit And so it looks from the frame of reference of the moving ring particles as if the ring particles are being repelled by the outer moon. Enter the inner moon. The inner moon comes along and it's orbiting faster than the ring particles. Therefore, it gets out ahead of them. Now the ring particle looks out and says, oh, I'm moving this way, there's a moon in front of me, I get a force pulling me forward and so I accelerate faster. So these ring particles here feel a forward acceleration. What does a forward acceleration do to you? It speeds you up. If you speed up, you get pushed into a higher orbit. So the effect of these two moons is to act like two sheepdogs on a herd of sheep. It actually confines them together gravitationally. Those p- ring particles that wander too close to the inner boundary of the ring get, a ver- get very close to the inner moon. Closer to the inner moon, you get a stronger force like the square of the distance. And therefore, that stronger force gives you a strong forward acceleration and it perturbs you back up into the middle, into the gap. Similarly, a moon that wanders too far to the outside gets decelerated and dropped back into the ring. Now, what really happens, of course, remember our spaceship problem, where we had the spaceship in a circular orbit and you either make it go faster or slower, it goes on to a slightly elliptical orbit. So it doesn't move into a smaller circle, it moves into an ellipse. So what's happening? Well, if you've got stuff in a circular orbit and something's in an ellipse, you have a chance for collisions. So what happens is you actually excite the moon particles either into a smaller or larger ellipse, and then the collisions among the ring particles damp out the eccentricity, and you're back into circular orbits. So it's a combination of not just the gravity, but also the collisions, which lead to this confining effect of so-called shepherd moons. Well, that's just a picture. Here's actually the shepherding effect in action. This is the outer F-ring of Saturn, a little thin ring here. There's the Anki division and the Keeler gap, and then there's this very thin F-ring. No one could figure out why the thin F-ring was there until Voyager 2, which saw two moons, Pandora and Prometheus, that are the shepherd moons of the outer F-ring. And sure enough, there's a very strong shepherding effect going on. Cassini has taken some really phenomenal pictures of this shepherding effect. Here is Prometheus, which is an irregular moon, and the F ring now seen close up. And you can see the F ring is actually kind of this multi sectored braided thing, and this dark stuff here is actually a gore, a wave in the ring. It turns out that Prometheus is not on a circular orbit. It's actually on a slightly elliptical orbit. So sometimes it comes closer to the F ring, sometimes it moves further away. So if you get a periodic forcing and back, forcing and back, what are you going to do? You're going to start exciting waves in the ring. So the weird braiding effect of the F ring is actually waves getting pushed through this ring of ice balls. Well, here is got to be one of the coolest movies I've seen in a long time. This is a time-lapse movie of Prometheus approaching the F ring and then watch. Now we're going to, it's going to blank out while it passes into the shadow of Saturn. Look at that. Okay. Play it again. So here's Prometheus comes up towards the F-ring. Its gravity starts to perturb particles. It just touches it, starts peeling off material. We pass into shadow and lose it and then come back out. And there's that wave just poof, through the ring particles. It's a gravitationally induced wave through these things. Now you can see why some of my colleagues who study rings get really excited about them. They're just amazingly cool stuff going on. And sure enough, that Epsilon ring around Uranus, that really, really thin 100 kilometer ring, it turned out when the Voyager 2 mission passed in 1986, these two moons, later named Ophelia and Cordelia, turned out to be the shepherds of the Epsilon ring. Again, playing exactly the same role of confining the Epsilon ring to be nice and thin. Now, this is an effect of confinement. Well, what about those gaps? What about those big gaps? Like the Cassini Division, why is there darkness? Well, the gap, first of all, isn't empty. There is ice balls there. Turns out that what's going on here is an example of a resonance. Remember, orbital resonance as we saw before. It turns out that the Cassini Division, if you had a single ice ball orbiting in the middle of the Cassini Division, the broadest dark band in the rings, it would take 11 hours to orbit once around the planet Saturn. Mimas, the moon that looks like the Death Star, That one's out a little further away, outside the the rings, but it orbits once every 22 hours. That's an exact two-to-one resonance. So what happens is an ice ball that's sitting here in the middle, minding its own business, going around in a circular orbit, every now and then at the same place in the orbit feels this tug from MIMAS out there. And it feels the tug in exactly the same place. So it's like pushing a kid on a swing. You push the kid on the swing exactly in time with their swing, exactly in resonance. The swing gets bigger and bigger and bigger on each swing. You then excite this ice ball into an elliptical orbit. And that elliptical orbit moves it to either the outside or the inside, where it collides with the other ring particles and clears the space in the ring. So this is an example of a resonance that's actually clearing a persistent gap. So there's another way in which we can see this effect of resonances writ large. It sculpts the ring because of these resonant interactions between the moons and the individual ice balls in the ring. This repelling effect also plays a game in the Enki gap. No one could understand the Enki gap because it wasn't near a resonance. Well, Cassini took a deep picture and found, buried right down smack in the middle of the Enki gap, a moon called Pan. As Pan moves around on its orbit... A particle trying to come in from the outer part of the ring will feel that acceleration forward and get brought back up into it. A particle down here will see Anke will be moving faster than the moon pan. We'll see behind, so if it tries to move up into that orbit, it gets decelerated and dropped back down. Unfortunately, I don't have a good picture of it here to show you, but you also get this wonderful wake of waves in the ring behind the moon as it moves along. It leaves little ripples in either edge of the Yankee Gap. So where do the rings come from? What's the origin of these things? Well, the first thing to notice is the rings aren't very massive, right? In the case of the rings of Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune, they've got about the mass you would expect for an ice ball about 10 kilometers across. Saturn's rings are a lot bigger. It's more like a mid-sized icy moon one or 200 kilometers across, depending on how you do it. Well, there certainly are 10 and 100 kilometer ice ball-like things around, so that's a hint. The ring particles may have had their origin either a an icy moon that wandered inside the tidal or so-called Roche radius of the planet and was tidally disrupted and broken into parts. And so what we're seeing is the debris from a moon that was gravitationally torn apart by the tides of, say, Saturn, in the case of Saturn or Jupiter. So that's one possibility. You bring in a consolidated moon, and then the tides rip it and shred it apart, and the shredded parts are what form the ring. The other possibility is that we think that a lot of the moons formed with the planet in a sort of a rotating nebula out of which the planet originally formed, just like we think, for example, the four Galilean moons formed. However, if you're inside this tidal radius, the tides would be so strong you would never be able to consolidate the bits into a bigger thing. The minute you got above a certain size, the tidal force would just rip it apart again. So either you're a moon that wandered in and got destroyed, or it's the raw material that would have built a moon there, but it never got to consolidate because of the tidal action of the host planet. Well, this tidal radius has a name. It's called the Roche radius. It's the distance at which how close you can get to an object before the tidal forces on the moon are exactly equal, front to back, are they equal to the gravitational force holding that moon together. It's basically the disruption radius. If the moon gets closer than its Roche radius, basically the gravity front to back gets so big it basically tears it apart. And it just simply shreds the object. If you have Similarly, if you have icy particles orbiting inside the Roche radius, they can collide to build a bigger thing, but once the thing gets above a certain size, the tidal forces rip it back apart again. It sets a limit on how big you can grow. Well, the reason why we think this is the case is all the rings are close to their planet. They're within one and a half to two times the radius of the planet. That places the rings are all, in every four cases, within the Roche radius of their host planet. Within the Roche radius of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, or Neptune. So here, once again, is the effect of gravitation, the effect of orbital dynamics, sculpting a system. In this case, we're seeing it sculpt the rings. and we get back from Thanksgiving break on Monday, we're going to see some other examples of gravitational sculpting, now not among rings, but among families of objects in the inner solar system, the asteroids, and in the outer solar system, the Kuiper belt. I'll see you all on Monday. Have a good Thanksgiving.